Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Paul Feuerstack, co-host for our series, C. difficile, Preparing the Field for Change. This series consists of six podcast episodes for all clinicians from gastroenterology, infectious disease, hospital medicine, geriatric medicine, primary care, and from academic and community-based settings. We'll explore how to take a patient-centered approach to treatment, diagnosis, explore emerging treatment options, and discuss best practices for transitions of care. In today's episode, we're going to discuss shifts in the microbiota seen with C. difficile infection, and we're joined by my co-host, Dr. Sahil Khanna. Dr. Khanna is a professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He completed his medical school at the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in New Delhi. Postdoctoral research at University of California, San Diego, California, residency in internal medicine and fellowship in gastroenterology and hepatology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, before joining the faculty. He also completed a master's in clinical and translational sciences at Mayo Clinic. His interests include epidemiology, outcomes, and emerging therapeutics for C. difficile, an arena in which he has had over 150 publications and numerous presentations. He is directing the consultative gastroenterology interest group, C. difficile clinic, fecal microbiota transplantation program, and C. difficile-related clinical trials at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He has won numerous awards, including the Miles and Shirley Feiderman Award, Mayo Brothers Distinguished Fellowship Award, Donald C. Balfour Mayo Clinic Alumni Association Research Award, amongst others. Sahil, it's so good to have you today. Paul, thank you for the kind introduction and uh, speaking with me today. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. It's good to, good to, good to be with you. So today we're going to talk about a really fun topic. What we're going to be talking about are shifts in the microbiota and alterations of the microbiota. But I think it's important before we kind of dive in and get focused on C. difficile, let's talk a little bit about the microbiota. So in your mind, for a clinician, what is your definition of the microbiota? Critical, critical point because people and even clinicians use these terms interchangeably and some of these terms are just so new to science. When I think about microbiota, I just think about these are the microbes or microorganisms such as bacteria or fungi or protozoans or viruses that exist in nature. That's what I think about microbiota. And I think a similar related term is microbiome. Paul, what do you think the microbiome is? So, you know, it's important that you bring that up because the microbiota and the microbiome for most clinicians and most patients for that matter, they use that term interchangeably, but they're actually really different as you started to allude to. The microbiota are a group of microorganisms kind of in a located space or a defined space like the colonic microbiota or the microorganisms in the colon. The microbiome is the genetic complement of all of those microorganisms. So we essentially, I think, define the microbiota based on microbiome data. And as clinicians, and as this field starts to evolve, I think it's important that we use the correct terminology, just like any other area of medicine. If we don't use the correct terminology, then we're not necessarily going to understand 
what somebody else is trying to communicate. And that sort of builds upon the concept of dysbiosis. So how would you describe dysbiosis, Seal? When I think about a change or an imbalance from what was existing when the microbiome was in a healthy state, I think about that as a dysbiosis. So dysbiosis is a change or a derangement. Now the question is, it could be a loss of microbes or it could be a gain of microbes. It's just a change in the relative abundance of different kinds of microbes. But I think when we have to define dysbiosis, we have to, before that, we think about what's the healthy microbiome? And I think that's a more controversial topic. And that's why, Paul, I'm going to put you on the spot and say, what is a healthy microbiome? So that's a great question. And honestly, what we're starting to learn is a healthy microbiome is different for different people. And I think that that's a really important idea. You know, there's a number of different concepts around this. Looking at, as, as we're focused on the colon, looking at the colonic microbiota, when we consider that, we can consider the Human Microbiota Consortium that was published even 10 years ago, looking at the most common bacteria and viruses and fungi within the human intestinal colonic microbiota. We're talking about the bacteroidetes and the firmicutes and the actinobacteria and the proteobacteria and fusobacteria. But what defines normal and healthy is a bit interesting. One interesting study looked at patients based upon their age. And when they looked at patients who were over 65 and compared them with a group that were 20 to 25 years old, the group that was 20 to 25 years old had higher levels of lactobacillus and lower levels of proteobacteria. And the older group had higher levels of E. coli and lower levels of proteobacteria. So really what we're talking about is age matters, but also gender, gender matters. A Ukrainian study looked at 2,301 individuals. And within that study, they simply said, male or female. And what they found was that there were higher levels of firmicutes, higher levels of actinobacteria, lower levels of bacteroidetes in the women. And then ethnicity matters. A separate study looked at ethnicities and looked specifically at Asian Pacific Islanders, Hispanics, Caucasians, African-Americans, and they were all statistically significantly different. Not that these people weren't healthy, but the microbiota was different. And then when they subgrouped and they looked at age and gender and body mass index, it was all different as well. One of these situations where I say, the more you ask, the worse it gets. So what defines a normal, healthy microbiota to me is kind of a broad stroke. And I think we almost have to be our own control group. But I've said a lot, what do you think a normal, healthy microbiota looks like? Well, I completely agree with you. I'm just going to add something to it, saying as I'm growing older, you're mentioning that I'm going to start getting more E. coli and proteobacteria in my colon compared to when I was younger. So even as we grow older, even our microbes tend to leave us and we become less healthy, is what I would say. Well, you mentioned something that really resonated with me. You named a lot of different what we call as bacterial taxa, either species or phyla. And that just to me means like we've got a large diversity of microbes. Our microorganisms are... It's like several hundred to several thousands. There's lots of studies out there. There's more diversity if you're a hunter-gatherer to if you're a McDonald's eater. There's just that spectrum of diversity. But when you have, when I start reading these microbiome manuscripts, sometimes my head starts spinning because it's like alpha diversity, beta diversity, richness. How do I wrap my head around those terms? What do you think? Yeah, so these are really important concepts. And as we start to see more and more research defining the problems. I think that's part of the issue. I think 10 years ago, when people started to get interested in the microbiota, 
the process was, well, there's a disease, let's just let's just replace. And I think what we've done is we've kind of taken a step back and said, you know what, let's define the problem. And then we identify how we can probably supplement what the problem is. And these manuscripts are coming fast and furious, and they're using terms like alpha diversity and beta diversity. So the alpha diversity, to me, is the variability within a specific sample. And that is defined by the Shannon Index. A measurement of zero is non-diverse. A measurement of one is very diverse. And look, we want our microbiota to be diverse. What makes a healthy microbiota, and honestly, I view this just like society, what makes a healthy society, an American society, what makes us great in my mind, is the diversity, different people from different backgrounds working towards a common goal. I think it's the same thing with the microbiota. So alpha diversity is really important. And the higher the alpha diversity, I believe the healthier a sample is. Now, beta diversity, beta diversity is a comparison. This says, look, we have two samples. What are the differences amongst these samples? And that's largely measured in terms of number and abundance of, of species. That's largely measured by the Bray-Curtis dissimilarity index. But when we talk about the microbiota, one of the things that, that I like to think about is, yes, we care what's there. But what we've noticed is healthy individuals from different cultures, healthy men and women have different microbiota. But I think the largest concept here is the metabolome. So can you kind of outline what the metabolome means? Absolutely. Who's there is important. But more important is what are they doing? And then how are they doing that? I think that's how I think about this. So the metabolome is the group of different byproducts, proteins, fatty acids, enzymes, changes that happen due to the bile acid milieu that happens secondary to different compositions of a gut microbiome of the gut microbiome is how I think about it. And eventually the, the downstream effect of what the microbiome causes to the human body is mediated by the metabolome. So it's what the microbes are producing. That's what I think the metabolome is. And it's completely important, very, very critical for us to move from studying and understanding not just who's there, but what are they doing? And then try to understand how does that affect the human body? And that, that impacts not only C. difficile as a disease, but as we start thinking about the gut microbiome and its impact on other disease states outside of C. difficile, Diseases that are associated with chronic dysbiosis, like inflammatory bowel disease, IBS, neuropsychiatric illnesses, metabolic disorders, and the likes, you really have to start understanding the metabolome so that you can understand how do you then impact the microbiome to change the metabolome and then impact disease states. Absolutely correct. Very, very well said. And that, that's exactly, I think, where I wrap my head around it, which is we care most metabolically what that group of microorganisms is doing. If metabolically, that group of microorganisms is producing what needs to be produced metabolically to prevent disease, that's a success. And do we really care how we got there? Probably not. But as a clinician and as somebody who's interested in microbiome therapeutics, the question is, how do we manipulate it in that way? And also, look, we care about the proteins. We care about the metaproteomics. We care about the metabolomics. But one of the limitations that we currently have is we can't trace back what is producing what metabolically. And it's probably, again, more complicated than I'd say our supercomputers are even able to trace at this point. So I think that that's another piece of the, of the microbiota that really is kind of a black box. So as we define diseases, as we define disorders, like C. difficile, we have to understand the metabolomics. And I think with C. difficile, we have a good idea of the metabolomics. 
we have a good idea that the bile salt milieu plays a role switching on and off whether or not patients get C. difficile. Primary bile salts, the primary bile salts tend to promote germination, tend to promote onset of C. difficile, tend to promote recurrence of C. difficile in somebody who's had it before. Whereas the secondary bile acids, they tend to inhibit the vegetative phase. They tend to inhibit the phase that releases the toxins that stimulate the symptoms. Now, of course, in patients that get C. difficile, we see the correct metabolomic milieu with the bile salts, more primary bile salts, less secondary. So that sets up an environment for C. difficile to occur. But what's nice is the research that we're seeing now is kind of lock and key. We see that when patients are blocked from recurrence, when they don't get recurrence in the future, we kind of see that change. We see that metabolic alteration. So we're seeing form-fitting function with changing in the microbiota, but also we're seeing the form-fit function with the metabolic impact. So let's now shift over. Now that we have a nice foundation with regards to the microbiota, let's talk about the shifts in the microbiota with C. difficile infection. And can you speak to the alterations in the microbiota that leave patients prone to C. difficile? There are two aspects to this, Paul. One is overall diversity, and then two is composition. And I think when you're predisposed to C. difficile, you end up having changes in diversity, changes in composition, changes in richness, all that stuff. To explain it simplistically to my patients, I discuss with them, you probably had 100 trillion microbes in your large intestine or colon, which I think is the most interesting organ of the body, but I'm biased. I also discussed with my patients that you may have you may have had anywhere between 500 and 2,000 different bacterial species in your colon. The majority of them we can't grow in a lab. And when you took that clindamycin for dental prophylaxis, that clindamycin not only reduced the number from 100 trillion to much lower, but also reduced the number of bacterial species and their relative abundance, meaning some useful or helpful ones, unfortunately succumb worse in meaning there's a greater reduction of the bacteroides and formicutes and others to these antibiotics compared to the ones that we don't like, like the proteobacteria. So that's the simplistic way of how I explain to my patients. And I know you're you're big passionate, very passionate about the scientific studies that corroborate my simplistic view. So I'm going to ask you to comment on that. Sure. I mean, the science corroborates exactly with what you just said. The Chang study was probably the pivotal study that looked at this in 2008. And the Chang study, I think, was pivotal because it was the first one. And it was a time where 16S ribosomal RNA analysis or microbiota analysis was really kind of at its birth. And C. difficile, of course, was one of the first things to be studied. And in that study, they looked at at 10 total individuals. Three of them had no C. difficile. They were controls. Four of them had initial and three had recurrent. And when they compared diversity of the microbiota and constituency, what was actually there, they essentially found that when they compared no infection with initial infection, there were no statistically significant differences, but the microbiota was kind of bent. There were decreases in the bacteroidetes and the formicutes, but it wasn't significant. And I think that really kind of speaks to the differences that we see in rates of recurrence between initial infection and recurrent infection. Because once they compared first episode with recurrence, the microbiota was statistically significantly depleted. And in that circumstance, there was a significant depletion of the diversity, a depletion of the bacteroidetes and the formicutes, and that is kind of a devastated microbiota. And that is much more challenging to recover naturally without further interventions or without supplementation. So I think when we think about C. difficile and when we think about that initial episode, we have to think that if we treat aggressively with the first episode with targeted therapies, we're much less likely to result in a recurrence of the infection. But once we get to that recurrence, it's much more challenging 
for the patients to re-recover their microbiota and further and completely eradicate the infection. Now, on the other side of this, the antimicrobials, and I alluded to this previously in another episode, the antimicrobials that we use to treat C. difficile actually leave us prone to it. Can you speak to that a little bit, Sihil? There's more than one FDA-approved antimicrobial for C. difficile. There's one that was used traditionally, metronidazole, not an FDA-approved therapy, very broad spectrum. So in my simplistic mind, I think about, am I using a broad-spectrum antibiotic for C. difficile? Am I using a narrow-spectrum antibiotic for C. difficile? And the more commonly used, and we'll talk about in a future episode with all the specifics in the data, is vancomycin, which is the broad-spectrum antibiotic. And the less commonly used is fidaxomycin, which is the narrow-spectrum antibiotic and doesn't cause as much as collateral damage to the gut microbiome. Studies have shown that if you give people who are just colonized with C. difficile, meaning they don't have a C. difficile infection, you think, can I just give them vancomycin to prevent them from getting an infection? You actually see the opposite effect. You give them vancomycin when they're colonized, you open up the niche for that colonization to expand and those people getting C. difficile, because guess what? These antimicrobials don't actually kill the spore phase of C. difficile infection. So antimicrobial in itself, unfortunately, the majority of them open up that colonization resistance and open up that niche for C. difficile to start growing in people. Yeah, no, and, and and that's, you know, exactly why it's so important that we consider things like antimicrobial stewardship, but we also, it's so important that we understand diagnostics, that we understand that patients who we treat and who we choose to treat with C. difficile truly have the infection. And it's the same thing with recurrence. This concept that you alluded to with collateral damage, collateral damage is a problem, but we have a lot of patients that get C. difficile, get treated, and then they end up with a post-infection irritable bowel syndrome. And the diagnostics frequently can fail us in that situation. And we have best intentions. Patients are still having quote-unquote symptoms, but they might not be having the C. difficile symptoms. They might have less frequent bowel movements. They might have abdominal cramps that are lessened or worsened with bowel movements. They might fit the criteria for IBS. And teasing out those differences make a very important change in how we would approach these patients and also understanding the diagnostics, understanding the limitations of a PCR assay and requiring three liquid stools in a 24-hour period and the stools taking the shape of the specimen container and patients, of course, not being on laxatives, which is seems like a July-type maneuver in, in the hospital where there's interns, but in clinical practice, that happens also when people uh, don't review the medication list that patients are on. So I think all these things kind of come together. Now, one of the really, I think, important concepts that we have with C. difficile and the shifts in the microbiota is the time after antimicrobial therapy. You know, the antimicrobials, as we've said a couple of times already, they target that vegetative phase. They target that phase that releases toxins and causes symptoms. But what happens after that, Sahil? After you end the antimicrobials, you actually have this phenomenon called the window of vulnerability where your gut microbes have not yet recovered from the impact of the initial antibiotic that caused C. difficile and the antibiotic that you actually used to treat C. difficile. And you're in that window of vulnerability and you're almost at luck or chance or the factor of your comorbidity is that, are your spores gonna grow back faster or is your gut microbiome gonna recover faster? And within that window of vulnerability, if you get exposed to other modifiable risk factors, such as more antimicrobials, you're doomed. You're at a risk of getting C. difficile infection coming back. And that's exactly it. I mean, nature is awesome. Nature is beautiful. 
But once we have a dysbiotic state, especially with recurrence, as the Chang study showed, the microbiota is essentially devastated. And to have the requirement of us naturally regrowing the bacteroidetes and formicutes that are largely depleted makes it challenging. And if patients receive any other treatments antimicrobial-wise during that kind of two to three month period, that window of vulnerability, it really leaves them prone to getting a recurrence in the future. And that's been shown in clinical trials. That's been shown in, in clinical practice as well. So the question that I ask you, Sahil, is, is there anything during the window of vulnerability that you do to protect the microbiota? I advise my patients to stay away from dentists. I advise my patients to stay away from antibiotics. And there is some work that's been done from other people's labs. I would say like Justin Sonberg's done a lot of work. Jeff Gordon's done a lot of work where there are some foods that may be microbiome promoting or may be helpful in restoring the microbiome. The data's mixed, but I would say that there's one of those situations where it's like little to no harm done whatsoever, increasing more fibers, eating more fruits and vegetables. So I advise my patients to stay away from risk factors, but also try to eat some microbiota diversity promoting foods for what it's worth. And I think that's great. It's the whole old concept that we're taught in grade school an apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? Absolutely, Paul. I think that is the way to go. I also want to give a teaser to our listeners here today that Paul mentioned a little bit about diagnostics, and we are going to have a future episode where we'll make you experts in interpreting all of the diagnostics of C. difficile. Excellent. Excellent. Well, this this has been a lot of fun today, Sahil. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for tuning in to the series on C. difficile, preparing the field for change, which was supported by educational grants from Immune Therapeutics, Serious Therapeutics, and Ferring Pharmaceuticals. Special thanks to today's guest, Dr. Sahil Khanna. For additional resources on C. difficile, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.